Welcome to the Shit Talk Podcast. I'm your host, Liz Broder. Are you ready to shoot the shit? Welcome back, and I am a little sad to say, happy December. (sighs) Every year seems to go by faster and faster. I know I sound like I'm 100 years old, but it's true. Anyway, I'm your host, Liz Broder. Welcome back to Shit Talk. Today's topic, one of the most stale diets on the shelves right now. Diet that makes RDs, quite frankly, want to head for the goddamn hills. I'm talking about the keto diet. First off, what is this trendy term? Getting beaten like a dead horse, the keto diet. Keto, short for ketogenic. It's a diet clinically used to treat epilepsy or seizures, and it's gained popularity in recent years due to its quick weight loss results. People often refer to it as a high-protein diet. The most accurate description is actually a high-fat diet. Traditionally, keto is 75% of your calories from fat, 20% from protein, and 5% from carbs. So it's a high-fat diet. It's also, you can refer to it as low-carb, but really high-fat is the most accurate. And for perspective on traditional fat and carb intake, the AMDRs are acceptable macronutrient distribution range for fat, 20 to 35% of your calories coming from fat. And on keto, it's 75%. So you can see the drastic increase. And in terms of carbs, standard intake on the keto diet for carbs is around 50 grams or less per day. Of course, this is contingent upon each person figuring out what your body needs to get into the state of ketosis. For some, it could be less carbs than that. So For most, it's an absolute maximum of 50 grams, and most people are having a minimum of 150 grams of carbs a day. Easy. That's a conservative estimate. So you can see the drastic decrease from 150 grams to 50 grams or less per day, just to put that into perspective. Now, on the keto diet, the goal is to get your body into a state of ketosis, which requires a metabolic shift from utilizing glucose as our default fuel source to utilizing ketones as our default fuel source. And in case you don't know, our default fuel source is carbohydrates in their simplest form, glucose. The body's second fiddle for fuel is fat in the form of ketones. Um, Now, second fiddle should tell you everything you need to know, but don't worry because I will get more into that. And third, um, only really in emergency situations does the body oxidize protein. We don't want the body oxidizing protein. This is really more seen in chronically ill, people losing muscle mass. We call it wasting. It's definitely not a goal. So first is glucose, second fiddle is fat, third is protein. And just to make note of this, there is a lot that can be said about the keto diet. There's a lot of scientific processes and shifts that take place in the body to go from a glucose burning state to a ketone burning state. But I'm not getting into all that. Obviously, what I'm interested here is how the keto diet impacts our bowel movements, our digestion and our gut. So here we go. Here's a deep dive into what I like to call the keto gut. First off, the keto diet puts us at a much higher risk for constipation due to several changes the body goes through when shifting from using glucose as its default energy source to ketones as its default energy source and when we're decreasing carbs. So I will briefly touch on those now and then deep dive into them in a second. But so keto diet puts us at much higher risk for constipation. This is due to a significant decrease in fiber when we decrease our overall carbohydrate intake. It's due to a loss of stored water in the body when we lower our carb intake. It's due to less insulin secretion, which is also due to lower lower carb intake. And lastly, it's due to a decrease in electrolytes, minerals, specifically sodium, potassium, and magnesium. So those four reasons are putting us at a much higher risk for constipation on the keto diet. Now I will dive 
into them and break them down. So the first I mentioned is fiber. For those of you who don't know, fiber is an indigestible carb. So fiber is a carb. Naturally, when you're decreasing your carbohydrate intake, you're most likely decreasing your fiber as well. Fiber is found in fruits, vegetables, and whole grains. Because keto is so low on carbs, like I mentioned before, 50 grams or less, most fruits are actually not allowed and minimal veggies actually as well, only white and green veggies allowed on the keto diet because these are what's lowest in carbs. There's a lot of sugar in fruit. There is sugar in veggies. And although it's natural sugars, they are carbs. So a lot of them interfere with getting the body into a state of ketosis and are actually not allowed on the diet. That right there cuts out fiber intake when you're limited on your fruits and veggies because that's a main source of our fiber. Obviously, starch is significantly decreased on the keto diet, and this includes whole grains, which is another main source of fiber. For those of you who don't know, fibers help lubricate bulk and soften stool, so they pass more smoothly. A bulkier stool passes more smoothly, more, e- more easily. So a lack of fiber is directly correlated with constipation every day of the goddamn week. If you lower your fiber, you're going to see a decrease in those bowel movements. That's an absolute promise. I don't care who you are. You cannot run from that. That is just the way the body works. So personally, if you couldn't tell, I'm not an advocate for the keto diet. I think it's unsustainable and quite dramatic. But anyone who finds out I'm an RD asks me immediately, first topic always, what are your thoughts on keto? I'm, t- I'm on the keto diet. What do you think? What's your opinion of the keto diet? My friend tried keto diet. I'm on the keto diet. Any party any situation, a wedding, a funeral, it doesn't matter where you are. If you're an RD, that's what people bring up, at least recently. My first only and mic dropping question to them is when's the last time you pooped? They always look at me slightly embarrassed with their tail between their legs like, oh man, not in a while. That's the one thing that's really sucked about it. And what do you think I say? No shit, literally. And this is due in part to this so little fiber on this high fat, low carb diet. Because remember, fiber is a carb. For reference, in terms of daily fiber intake, the American Heart Association, as well as the Dietary Guidelines for Americans, recommend 25 to 30 grams of fiber daily. Keto is, like I've said, 50 grams of carbs or less. So you can imagine how difficult it is to get fiber in when half your actual carb intake for the day is supposed to be fiber. You need to be really intentional about it. And for people who, you know, lackadaisically decide I'm going to go keto, they're not thinking about fiber. They're not getting half of their daily carbohydrate intake from fiber. They're just limiting so many carbs and it's overwhelming and fiber's not on their mind. So you can see how that contributes to a constipated keto gut. Next, along with lowering carbs comes dehydration. And we all know from Two weeks ago, my episode about hydration, I'm a nut about hydration. I demand it. I expect it with anyone I work with, from anyone I work with one-on-one, because it's typically the easiest, most minimal effort thing that you can control. Not always, but usually. So now, how does dehydration come out of lowering carbs? Well, the body stores three grams of water, so three H2O molecules, for every one gram of carbohydrate stored. This is why oftentimes when people go on a low-carb diet or keto, they lose weight quickly. This is water weight. So as you stop consuming carbs, your body stops storing that three grams of water with every gram of carb. And then as your body starts running through your stored carbs, your glycogen stores, 
it then gets rid of all that stored water. So again, lowering carbs, your body's not storing water the same way. And as it's running through the stored carbs, the glycogen, it's also flushing out that water as the carbs and the stored carbs go with it. So this de- this decreases water storage in the body, which makes dehydration very likely and therefore constipation very likely. As we know, dehydration is a huge reason behind constipation, which I touched on last week or two weeks ago. So you can understand why a high-fat, low-carb diet like the keto diet can lead to constipation, can lead to drier stools, can lead to rest less regular stools. My next point is about insulin. So when we natu- when we decrease our car- carbohydrate intake, our insulin naturally decreases, and this also impacts electrolytes. Insulin's a hormone that helps regulate our blood sugar. It works to bring blood sugar levels back to normal level when they've spiked after simple sugars or a high-carb meal. Lower insulin levels actually cause your kidneys to excrete excess water and sodium. This excretion of sodium actually leads to a parallel loss of potassium, just due to the mechanism in which sodium and potassium coexist in the body while your body's in a state of ketosis. So there's more science to that. I'm not getting into it, but just know lower insulin, the kidneys excrete water, with that goes sodium, and then in turn goes potassium. Another electrolyte that we see deficient in many keto dieters is magnesium due to the lack of variety in the diet. A lot of fruits are limited, a lot of veggies are limited, and these are oftentimes people's main source of magnesium. So between that And the lower insulin, which leads to the sodium and potassium going down, we see a decrease in sodium, potassium, and magnesium, these three electrolytes. What you may not know about these three electrolytes is that they actually help draw in water to your colon to help lubricate the stool, make it easier to pass, and keep you regular. So as you can imagine, once you're lowering your carbohydrate intake and insulin naturally decreases, and in turn, these electrolytes decrease, it's just another thing. You're already lower on fiber. Your body's got less water. Now you're lower on these electrolytes that are supposed to help draw in water, which your body's already lower on, to the colon to help pass the stool. That's a third reason why we're at such a high risk for constipation when you're on the keto diet. Now, I'm about to get into some more of the biochemistry behind how a high-fat diet impacts our gut. It's a little bit denser, but hang in. I promise I've got some light, sassy shit talk on the other side, so sit tight. I'm going to make this as digestible as possible. Please know it's much more complex than how I'm presenting it. The body deserves way more street cred than my explanation gives, but I want this to make sense. So when discussing fat, it's really important to mention bile acids. Bile acids are synthesized or made in the liver, they're made from your cholesterol, and they're stored in the gallbladder. After we eat, the gallbladder releases these bile acids via the bile duct into our small intestine. And this is where they help break down fat so that we can absorb it and digest it. As you can imagine, when you're drastically increasing your fat intake, your body is going to need more bile acids to properly break down all of this fat that you're consuming. Bile acids can be very corrosive. If you couldn't tell from the name, obviously the word acid, and for whatever reason, the term bile acids to me is just kind of dramatic and it just sounds corrosive. So anyway, bile acids are very corrosive. When you're increasing the fat in your diet, you'll be dumping more of these bile acids into your small intestine. And this can potentially cause erosion in the gut lining because it is so corrosive and because there is so much more of it. This is relevant for everyone, but especially for those with any kind of current gut or GI issue who may be more sensitive or more susceptible to damage in their gut lining. 
And it's also really relevant for people who have some type of chronic gut or GI issue that may already have a damaged gut lining. The second point to note about bile acids is that they have a very strong antimicrobial activity. So as you can imagine, this is going to directly impact your gut's microbiota or the gut flora or the gut bacteria. And this brings me to my final keto gut point about how high fat and a low carb diet actually impacts and changes your gut flora. So diet is primarily what dictates the contents of our gut bacteria. Um, And one of those being fiber, that's really what feeds and fuels your gut bacteria. So you're already most likely decreasing your fiber because we're decreasing our carbs. On top of it, we now have more bile acids, which have antimicrobial activity. So that's directly going to impact what grows, what thrives, and what doesn't. To put into perspective for you, another impact that the keto gut is going to have on your gut flora. So we, d- we already established that bile acids are have antimicrobial, antimicrobial activity and that they are released in greater numbers due to the increase in your fat. Another thing to keep in mind is probiotics. It's, it's a supplement of it's supposed to be healthy bacteria, good for the gut. There's a lot of research for them, a lot of research against them. One of the main things against them is that people say they're not even effective because they don't actually survive the journey from your mouth when you take them all the way through the gut. And this is due to the corrosive environment, the stomach acid, the bile acids. So that's just something to keep in mind. There is research supporting both that, yeah, they are useless and no, they are they make it and survive the journey. Um, so there's not, we don't really have definitive, conclusive science on that yet, especially because this is a newer topic. It's just to put this into perspective for you that bile acids have an antimicrobial activity, they're corrosive, they may potentially make probiotic supplements completely ineffective, and therefore you can only imagine the impact they're having on the actual bacteria, good bacteria, in your gut. So moving on to how a high-fat diet impacts your gut and changes we've seen in research. So There is a study from 2009 in the journal called Gastroenterology, and it showed that high-fat diets cause a change in your gut flora. It showed that they showed a decrease in your bacteroidetes and an increase in both your firmicutes and proteobacteria, independent of obesity. So that was actually the interesting part of this study is that whether the person had an obese phenotype or a lean phenotype, when they were on a high-fat diet, they saw these changes in their bacteria, the bacteroidetes decreasing, and then the other two, firmicutes and proteobacteria, increasing, which is something to consider because when you're on the keto diet and it's a very high-fat diet, whether you have the obesity gene or the obese phenotype or the lean phenotype, there is potential to see this change in the gut bacteria, regardless of your actual genes. Um, And, you know, you have to keep in mind there are so many strains of bacteria. These three are very heavily studied because there are known ratios that they are seen in, in the obese phenotype. And that's why I'm bringing this up. So this shift we saw in the study on the high fat diet, regardless of if someone was obese, regardless of if they were lean, it was similar to the ratios we see in the obese phenotype where there are higher amounts of firmicutes and proteobacteria and lower amounts of bacteriodetes. So long story short, this study supports that when you're on a higher fat diet, you're going to see a change in your gut flora. It doesn't necessarily guarantee that. And it's not to say that everyone who's on the keto diet is going to see this. It's also not to say that if you're obese or have the obese obesity gene or obese phenotype, that, you know, this is going to trigger something in you. Um, 
But what it is to say is keep in mind that all of these changes on a high fat diet actually do create a gut flora that has a ratio similar to the gut flora we see in the obese phenotype. That's the point to note. So as I mentioned earlier, I'm already not an advocate for keto. I think it's really dramatic and not sustainable. On top of it, when I'm seeing changes like this in the gut flora, fuck no. You're not trying to get after the gut flora of the obese phenotype. It's just, to me, that is black and white. Um, And very few things in science are black and white, but that is just, why would anyone want to get after that? So I felt the need to mention that. It's definitely not to say, it's not to scare anyone and it's not to say you're definitely, this is definitely going to happen in you. It's just in studies, these are the changes and shifts we're seeing in the gut flora on a high fat diet. So I hope that makes sense. Um, And my other point is just really to be cognizant when you're making a shift in your diet. You have to remember that when you feed, whatever you're feeding yourself, you're feeding your gut and your gut is directly connected to your brain via the gut brain axis. That's for another episode because I could talk about that for five years, but your gut directly impacts your mood, cognitive state, brain fog, things like that. So when you're trying a new diet, pay attention to your mood, pay attention to your energy, pay attention to your cognitive sharpness because your gut microbiota directly impacts these factors and your diet directly impacts the gut microbiota. So it's really interesting to see in science when they when you're reading these studies and, and different uh, patterns that they find, it's really interesting to see what foods cause, you know, depression, what foods cause high energy, what foods cause brain fog, because there really is a connection. You feed your gut flora, the gut flora talks to the brain, just breaking it down in in its absolute simplest possible way. Now we're going to talk, we're going to transition into my weekly shit talk of other kinds. This is not nutrition related. This is Liz Broder's opinion and I know everyone wants to hear it and that's why I'm sharing it. So it's that time of year when Spotify comes out with their wrapped list. If you don't know what that is, it's basically like a personalized recap of your music, artists, genres listened to that year. I'm still trying to figure out why anyone thinks anyone else gives a shit about the music you've listened to that year. I understand like, oh, this is my favorite artist. You post it, you tag them. Like it's nice. It's supportive. I get that. But what I don't understand When did society start thinking that everyone gives a shit what you're doing? I don't get it. Your food, your music, the color of your socks. Like, why are you sharing this? I've opened my Instagram today. 55 people have stories all with this fucking Spotify. Like, first of all, yeah, I I, I can see how it's interesting for you. Oh, I, I spent this amount of time listening to this podcast. This is my topic. Like, I get why you might care. I also don't get how it's really news to you because you know what you listen to. You know the podcast you listen to. You know the music you listen to. You know the artist you listen to. It's not exactly enlightening information. That's point number one. Point number two, on what planet would I give a shit what music you're listening to or how much how much time you spend listening to Taylor Swift? I, I, I just, I couldn't think of something that I give less fucks about, if I'm being honest. Like, Listen to your music. That's great. Enjoy yourself. Sing. Yeah, I, I'm not understanding why this list is such a production. And everyone posts it. Everyone. You go on Instagram. Oh my God. It's like, I just don't get what people are thinking these days. It's the same thing with food. It's like, maybe because I'm a dietitian, but do you want to know what I think of when people post food? Immediately bowel movements in my head. I look at it. I'm like, oh, huh, that looks like a bowel explosion waiting to happen. Or I'm like, oh, 
that looks super fucking constipating. Why are they eating that? I don't care what you're eating unless you're talking nutrition with me. I'm a dietitian. Someone comes to me to discuss it. Fine. Other than that, I don't care what you're eating. I don't need to see a picture. And I don't care what you're listening to. When did we transition into this oversharing environment? It's directly correlated with social media, obviously, and how easily we can share and post information these days. It's quick. People like the likes. It's instant gratification. But I'm just, I'm still at a total loss because so much of it is fake, filtered, and fabricated in some way, shape, or form. And everyone knows that. So like, why bother? I have to say, all of my friends agree on this topic. It's something I've spoken to in depth with all my friends, all my closest friends. We all agree that the people who post the most are by far the least happy. And I'm not talking about people who use social for work or for marketing. Like, I get that. It's a great tool for marketing. Obviously, people are on there scrolling. I get that. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about the people that post 15 pictures from the same party or 15 pictures of their kid and their kid's drawing or from one meal. It's like, I have one friend. She posts a hundred times more than all my friends. You can combine all my friends' posts, multiply it by a hundred. She still posts more than them. She is easily the least happy, the least successful, and has the least to show for herself. She travels the least. She lives the least fancy life. And she's the least exciting, quite frankly, for all my friends. And she clearly lacks self-awareness. So I'm not even worried about saying this on the pod because she would have no idea I'm even referring to her. But it's like, then I have a friend. She lives part-time in her house in Beverly Hills, part-time in her apartment in Tribeca. She flies private regularly. Her ensembles are all probably minimum $3,000. No big deal. She rarely posts. This is just her life. She's not advertising it. She has an abundant lifestyle. She's hardworking. She's brilliant. She just lives her life. She's not looking to prove anything. She's not looking to get anything back from people. She's not looking to show you this. It, it's like it, 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 she's just being herself and she has nothing to prove and she's not looking for likes and she's not looking for your approval. I, I just, it, it's the tryhards and the wannabes. They're always posting constant, constant, constant. It's so scripted. It's so obvious. And frankly, it is so unimpressive. That's my opinion on that. I appreciate when people travel, they post pictures from the trip, pretty landscape or seeing a monument or, you know, you're in museums and there's beautiful art. Like, yeah, share that. That's great. I post a lot of my dog because most people love dog pics, but it's also like one thing about the traveling, there's people who post, they're on a trip. Fine. Then there's the people I'm like, when do you have time to do this? Aren't you traveling? Get off your phone, live in the moment, enjoy the company. Like anytime I've traveled with a significant other, I've just been so happy to have them all to myself and we were alone and we're traveling together and we're experiencing this together. It's like, it's such a rare amount of time that I would have that person all to myself, whether this be a boyfriend, whatever, that it's like the last thing I'm thinking about is, oh, the followers, I better check in. They're going to want to be seeing this. Better update my story. Better update my feed. Better, but it's like no one gives a fuck, first of all. And second, I don't give a fuck what anyone's giving a fuck about. So why would I care? about them seeing this. Like, I want to see it and experience it with the person I'm with. And I, I think it's just the world is not headed in a very good place with the constant updates and the constant posting. Posting, And one of my favorite sayings is the loudest man in the room is the weakest man in the room. And it's like, if you're loud on social media and the more shit you're posting, the, le- the less happy you are and the less things you actually have to show for yourself. In my opinion, because I know everyone loves an unsolicited opinion. This brings me to Mark Zuckerberg. I don't know anyone that likes that guy. 
This may be unfair of me, but I blame him for all this. Facebook. It, it all started with Facebook. I don't know what it's done to people, our social skills, social accountability. As you all know, I love accountability. People have no social accountability. It's just we, sh- we rapid fire share information. We judge things. Every, like I said before, things are fake and filtered and fabricated. None of it's accurate. We all know it, but we still go along with it. I blame him. Not just because he's got a punchable fucking face, but I don't know that his invention of Facebook and all the shit he's doing in the metaverse or whatever it is, I don't know if that's really helping anyone. I don't know if we're happier. I don't know if we're more in touch with with ourselves and emotion. I, I, I don't really see the positive correlation between Mark Zuckerberg, Facebook, and humankind. Also, I'm dying to know who is he friends with. Like, I've never seen anything in the news about, like, other than Priscilla. Like, yeah, she's fucking married. That's a legal friendship. Like, he's got her for life. Fine. Other than her, who's he friends with? Does he have, like, the king of Facebook and but how many friends can you have? Friend me, add me, blah, blah. Where are his friends? Who, act, like, who does he go grab a beer with? Who does Mark Zuckerberg complain about his wife to? Who does he talk shit to? Like, I'm dying to know because I... If I had to guess, I don't think he has that many friends. The irony there, Mr. Fucking Facebook. And here I'm talking out of my ass. Obviously, I don't know him. I don't want to know him. And I can tell you, I went to school in Silicon Valley where, you know, tech is life. Everyone loves startups. Everyone loves, um, you know, social media technology companies. No one liked Mark Zuckerberg. No one was impressed with him. No one was trying to work at Facebook from where I went to school. No one was like, oh, my God. Mark Zuckerberg life. Like no, no one cared. No one was interested. I don't know. I, I'm, I think it's the punchability factor of his face, which is, you know, it's not about being ugly or hot or tra- an attractiveness. It's just the punchability. It's, it's something about it. It's off-putting. I don't like his face. I don't like him. I don't like what he's done to society. And I don't think it's really helped anyone in any regard. And I'm sorry, I'm sure we will have data and science to back this up in a couple more decades. We probably don't really have statistical evidence now, but I think we will. And it's all going to come back to that Mark Zuckerberg because I really do think he's the root of this. I'm sorry. I I know he's never going to even find this podcast or listen. So I I don't, I'm not worried about hurting his feelings. Um, And I'm sure he would care so much, but um, yeah, I'm not a fan. So let me know your thoughts on that. I want to know if I'm alone in this. Something tells me I'm not just given, you know, that face and everyone's response to him, even in Silicon Valley, which is like, you know, Facebook Mecca. No one gave a shit. So would love to hear that. Other than that, have an amazing week. If you're on the keto diet, rethink that shit. How's your shit? Think about your shit. Yeah. Um, and reach out to me if you have any other questions regarding a high-fat diet or going keto, why you would go keto, and I'm happy to explain to you why you shouldn't. And that's it. So thanks for tuning into this week's Shit Talk, and I look forward to seeing you next Monday. Have an amazing week. And as always, please feel free to DM me, Liz underscore Broder, with any questions, comments, or feedback. Take care. Bye.